chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, Someone uh, really helpfully told me recently that it's important to view Christmas through the atonement. It's not just a sweet story, but God taking on human flesh to atone for his people. There's a manger, but a cross is coming. That cross was not just a good idea, but real wrath poured out on Christ to pay for us. So the sin and error in which the world was pining is about to be dealt with at the cross, not to mention the preceding 30 years of perfect obedience for us. That was really helpful to hear because I've been a little embarrassed that of all the passages we could land on on Christmas, uh, we're in Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. It's not exactly what Buddy the Elf said, right? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is preaching about bloody animal sacrifices for all to hear. (laughs) It's not exactly visions of sugar plums dancing in our heads, but by the end of this sermon, I think we're going to end up in Bethlehem in a way that will really encourage us today. It's going to encourage our hearts on this Christmas Eve. So all that said, please turn with me to Leviticus 16. Uh, These Old Testament passages and the whole story is sometimes chapters long, so I'm only going to read verses 29 to 34 this morning, and we'll pick up many of the details from the rest of the chapter along the way. If you're able, please stand, not out of respect for the reader, but for he who speaks, which is God speaking to us through his word. This is God's word, Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses." This ends a reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. By your Spirit, open our eyes now to see Christ and his grace and transform us by that grace into his image day after day. We ask this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'll admit that over the last uh, year and a half, I haven't hit the gym uh, like I should, maybe like I used to. That's what New Year's resolutions are for, right? Um, But when I do go, I have a little routine that always makes me laugh. I've been doing this since Sophie was really little. Uh, I come home, I'm all sweaty, pretty smelly too, and I put my arms out and say, who wants a sweaty hug? And kids go running and screaming and yelling, no, no, chaos ensues. Uh, When Sophie was younger, I remember one time she curled her lip up to cover her nose. I don't know if I can even do that. Um, I think Mariana and and her family does that. It's it's a trait that Sophie picked up. And so she curls up her lip over her nose to plug her nose and says, No, go that way, Daddy, go that way. Well, the truth of the matter is, and I hope you'll not be offended by this, is that all of us uh, stink really bad. We stink really bad. 
At least we do in and of ourselves before the gospel gets a hold of us, before the good news gets a hold of us, and God's amazing work of grace happens in our heart. You know, the loving thing for me to do, uh, and listen up, teenage guys in the room, the loving thing to do when you come home smelling like that is to go take a shower. Just go clean up, all right? And then come back smelling like flowers, like Sophie always says. But the stink that we're talking about this morning can't be showered off. Uh, we share this, um, this sin problem in the sight of a holy God, and we can't clean ourselves up. We can't scrub the sin from our hearts. We need someone to come from the outside to deal with our problem. We need a substitute in our place. And that's a big part of the passage that we're looking at today. This kind of clean that we need to stand before a holy God, it comes at a really high price. The staggering cost of this kind of clean should leave us in awe of what God has done, providing a substitute to save us. So the big idea um, that you need to see today in this ceremony of the Day of Atonement that we're looking at is uh, the lamb for a nation, right? Uh, you need to see this theme. God is so perfectly pure and holy that sinners like us can only approach him through Jesus. We can only approach him through Jesus, the perfect substitute God has provided. I want you to hear that again. God is so perfectly pure and holy that sinners like us can only approach him through Jesus, the perfect substitute that God has provided. See, God is holy, and that's a problem for sinners. What do we do with that? Well, God has provided Jesus. That's the solution for sinners. We're going to look at the problem and the solution, both in turn. Let's look now at uh, God's holiness, which poses a problem to us. Uh, let's see how this passage really presses home God's holiness and what it means for sinners like you and me. Look back with me at verse 1 of Leviticus 16. God's unapproachable holiness and perfection and purity, his set-apart otherness from all creation, it's pressed home in this ceremony. We read this in verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. They drew near before the Lord and died. That's pretty ominous. What's going on with that? Well, this scene serves as the backdrop to the ceremony. It illustrates a really important truth, a truth we can't afford to miss. It's the death of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. This death in chapter 10 precipitates uh, God coming to Moses and instituting this important ceremony, the Day of Atonement. So without going entirely into the story, um, what happened was Nadab and Abihu, uh, they approached God in a way that God had not commanded. Uh, they offered worship to God that God had not commanded. They offered strange fire on the altar, and God consumed them in fire in response to their unacceptable worship. I think Gordon Wenham is on the right track when he observes that what's happening here is familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. He makes a great point that at the foot of Sinai, so you remember the story, the people of Israel are at the foot of Sinai, and the mountain is on fire with God's holiness revealed to the people. Well, at that time, it's very easy to say, all that the Lord says we will do, because the mountain is on fire, and you're seeing God's holiness but once that holiness has kind of faded from view, it becomes a distant memory in the hearts of the people, uh, God's holiness is forgotten and his commands are no longer taken to heart. God is very clear that being clean to enter his presence is a big deal. Uh, all of the, the purity laws of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant uh, represented that 
purity and holiness that needed to be had to come before him in worship. It's dangerous to approach God in any other way. The need for ritual purity had highlighted this deep problem of our hearts, that we need uh, holiness to stand before God. Even after those laws have ceased, it remains a problem that has to be dealt with. Because we sin on a daily basis, every one of us. Something has to be done about it. You see, uh, what you and I have to come to terms with is, generally speaking, uh, we live as if there's really nothing to worry about as far as our sin before God. It's a problem, a tendency that we all have, um, not just before we believe, but after we believe, to think that our sin isn't such a big deal. It's a horrible place to be, because even though God has forgiven us and we're perfectly forgiven, it will wreck our relationship with God. It'll rob the joy of fellowship from the believer to not consider our sin and to come before God in worship. Uh, look at Leviticus 16, verse 2 with me. The problem couldn't be stated any more clearly. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Again, it's such an ominous text, so that he may not die. But hear what he says next. Don't miss it. So that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Over the mercy seat. So that he may not die, but in the next breath, mercy. So that he may not die, mercy. That's the gospel, friends. Mercy. Even though we're warned of the judgment that we deserve, in the very next breath, there's mercy. Jesus is the very next breath. Jesus is that word mercy. Jesus is the good news. It's prefigured and it's pictured here in the mercy seat, in the mercy seat of the holy place, a place of trembling and awe, even danger, but because of Jesus, a place of mercy. Our sin and our imperfection pose a real problem for entering God's presence. It poses a real problem, but God doesn't dwell among his people on a judgment seat. He dwells among us on a mercy seat. Then and now, that's how God dwells among his people. He dwells among us in mercy. There's a sacrifice to open a new and living way through the curtain to that mercy. And Jesus is that sacrifice. We'll look more at what God has provided in Jesus in just a moment. But look at Leviticus 16 with me, verses 3 and 4. But in this way, we read, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So there's this washing for ritual purity. That's first. And then you have the bull and the ram that are for Aaron to atone for his own impurity and his own sin. And then the two goats that we'll see later, uh, these are for the people. And then notice the clothes that Aaron the high priest wears in this ceremony. Many point out that these garments God requires are really plain in comparison to the normal attire that the priest would wear, the high priest. They're simple. They're free of pomp and circumstance. Uh, it's like he's stripped down of any special aspect of his office. And he enters, of course, as the high priest on behalf of the people. But he has nothing to offer of his own. He's bringing nothing. He's dressed in simple, 
plain, clean clothing, and he has only to offer to God what he has received, what God has spelled out and given him to approach God. There's a lesson for us here too. I'll tell you what, uh, a few weeks ago, it was so hot up here, I wish I was wearing <laughs> this, uh, this outfit given to the high priest when he walked into the holy place. Um, but more seriously, this is what all of us wear when we approach the throne of our holy God. When we, when we come before God's mercy seat, we don't come with pomp and circumstance. We don't come with anything that makes us acceptable to God. No, we come just as we are, with nothing to offer for our redemption. We need what God gives us so that we can approach him. I think that's something we see in how Aaron approaches God here. So we move on now from pressing home God's holiness. His holiness is, is really uh, on display in this passage, and it's a big problem for sinners. So what's the solution? How are we provided for so that we can approach God? So we've seen God's holiness. Let's look now at God's provision. Uh, look again with me at Leviticus 16, picking up in verse 5. We read, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So I want to think about what each of these goats uh, represents in this act of atonement uh, made for Israel. Uh, this is the lamb for a nation, as we've been summarizing this theme of the lamb of God and how it takes us to Jesus. So let's look at these two goats. First, you have the sacrificial goat, the blood sprinkled on the altar. This bloodshed is necessary, as we've already seen in the case of Nadab and Abihu, because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Blood must be shed. Leviticus 17.11 really helpfully clarifies uh, why this bloodshed is needed, why it symbolizes the severe reality of our sin and what's required to cover sin. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We may think it's kind of strange and unsettling uh, that God would strike down two men like Nadab and Abihu uh, for straying from his instructions. Maybe it sounds kind of draconian to require blood sacrifice to atone for sin. It seems like something ancient and offensive to our modern ears. When you look at the God of the Old Testament, he might seem distant and strange, but it's kind of like that warning that's on your mirror of your car that says objects and mirror are closer than they appear. It is the same God of the Old Testament who we worship today, the same holy God who requires us to approach him only by what he has provided. Only by what he has provided. The same God who demands justice in the Old Testament for defying him is the same God who will return in judgment on the final day. This isn't some odd Old Testament deity, but the one true and living God whom we worship. We will give account to this God for our sins. 
That is, unless we cling to the substitute that he has provided for us. So the blood of the goat killed and sprinkled on the altar, sacrificed as a sin offering, it pointed to God's gracious provision, his provision for the problem of our sin. In the face of his holiness, it was prefigured in this substitute sacrifice. But again, why all the bloodshed, you ask? Why? Why does God require death? Why would his plan, pictured here in this prophetic picture of a sacrificial animal, why would his plan be to give uh, his own son over to death in our place? Why? Well, Hebrews 8 and 9 make this picture really clear. The sacrifice was pointing all along to Christ and his cross work on our behalf. His cross work for you. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the world, it has broken the law of the good creator who although he had no need of human beings to make him happy, he had the eternal joy of fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in all eternity. Yet he created us to worship him. He created us to enjoy perfect, perpetual, personal obedience and worship uh, to our God. And it wasn't a burden. That was a delight that we were created for. Living in obedience to God Uh, creating this relationship, creating us in relationship with him. It wasn't a burden. It was a delight. But by rebelling against God, the creature uh, made a play against God's throne. He tried to usurp God's throne. And this treason against the creator by the creature, by us, who owe our very life breath to God, it carries a death sentence. That's perfect justice. It's just And the bloodshed that continually poured out in the sacrificial system through substitutes sacrificed in the place of sinners time after time, it highlighted the hideous reality of what our sin deserves. But it also highlighted God's gracious provision. God giving a way of salvation through a substitute that we need. Why is Bethlehem necessary? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why did Jesus need to come? Why is veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, important and vital and crucial and good news uh, for sinners like us? Hebrews 9, 12-14 says this, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, the heavenly holy place, not the picture in the tabernacle, but the true holy place of God's presence, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So, in this strange, to our ears, a Day of Atonement ceremony, the sacrificial blood that sprinkled on the mercy seat, a mercy seat, don't forget that it's a mercy seat, on this mercy seat where God dwelt among His people, in this picture of the blood sprinkled there, look and see God's mercy to you. Look and see Christ given for you. Christ offered in your place. God's mercy, giving over His own Son to be sacrificed. A lamb for a nation. A nation that is now made up 
of people with passports from far off Warrington, Virginia, and of course Wichita, Kansas, and Congo, and Mexico, and Paraguay, and all around the world, people now form this nation. And God dwells among his people by his mercy. So that's the first part of God's provision that's prefigured, this sacrificial goat. But what about the scapegoat? What is the scapegoat? That phrase, you know, is, it's part of our vocabulary, even in English. What is a scapegoat? Well, it's this goat that's sent away, symbolically carrying the sins of the people far away from them. So remember the story about Sophie when I come home stinking and she says, go that way, daddy, when she's about two. Our sins need to go that way. But how can our sins go that way? How can our sins go? That's what's pictured here with the scapegoat. Look at verse 20 of Leviticus 16. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. A man who's ready. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Do you see the picture? Again, strange to our modern ears. But do you see the picture? God gives this goat and he tells the priest, lay your hands on the goat. It's a symbol of something being transferred to this animal. Something being laid on this goat. That something is the sin of the people. It's the sins you committed Tuesday afternoon. At least it pictures your sins being put on another. It's the sins you committed maybe getting here this morning uh, on Christmas Eve. I'm sure nobody sinned, right? Getting family all dressed up and ready to go. Um, I guess maybe we're the only ones. <laughs> all of our sin, all of our sin laid on another, on a substitute. Now, sending it into the wilderness to Azazel, that's a strange phrase, and we can only really guess at it. No, nobody knows. Okay, you can look at all the commentaries. If you figure it out, let me know. It could mean sending it to destruction. That's one interpretation. Uh, later Jewish writings suppose that this goat was run off a cliff. I'm not sure that's right or not. Um, some connections have been made to Azazel being a demon who lived in the desert. So there's a lot of options to explore. But the point is that the sins of the people are laid on the goat, and the goat goes that way. The goat runs, and he never returns. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins from us. Go that way. Go that way. Our sins go that way. So far that they can never, ever return. But the ceremony doesn't just get at the reality of our sins being removed. It gets at uh, the means of removing those sins from us. A theological way of putting it would be that our sin is imputed to another. It's laid on another, reckoned to that one's account. But it's a double imputation because we receive something as well. It's the great exchange, as it's been called. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what gets laid on Christ, your sins. And as for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him 
you know what it says? We might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus, he, he bore your sins. And just like that goat symbolized on that day of atonement, he's carried those sins far, far away. Your daily sins, the sins you committed yesterday, the sins you're going to commit tomorrow, they've been laid on Christ. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. That's how you are able to be made pure and to stand before God and worship him today because a sacrifice has been made in your place. A scapegoat has been provided for you in your place to to carry your sins far away and to die forsaken like that goat in the wilderness. Jesus died forsaken for you so that you will never be sent away and never be forsaken. Well, one more thing from verse 2. Something that should just blow our minds with Christ's sacrifice in our place. Look with me at verse 2. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Now, on this day, he could enter, but just once a year. How How did he do it? He had to purify himself. He had to come bearing an offering. If he came impure, defiled, ritually unclean, he couldn't make the offering. He would die where he stood. If he came purified but with no offering to give on behalf of the people, then the people would not be atoned for. But see, Christ, our perfect substitute, he had both the purity to offer the final sacrifice for sin, and he himself is the final sacrifice. He's the perfect high priest, the final high priest. He is the Lamb of God. Make no mistake, it is no accident that the angels appeared to poor shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem that first night of Jesus' birth, to shepherds who were not only basically outcasts, always ritually impure and not able to participate in worship in the temple. They were the lowest of the low. That's whom the angels came to. But what were shepherds doing outside of Bethlehem? Well, they're tending flocks, flocks of sheep, goats, sacrifices that year after year after year were given for the sins of the people. And imagine that. The angels come to these shepherds and they say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A final sacrifice for sin. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people. Remember, this theme of the Lamb ties in with the promise that was originally made to Abraham. The promise that in Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. All the nations will be blessed through this promise. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. It's here. It was born. It's born in Bethlehem. It's born to live and to die in the place of sinners and to rise and to reign over his people, to reconcile us to God. This sacrifice on our behalf did away with the need for the Day of Atonement. In fact, it completely changed the way we approach the Holy of Holies. It completely changed the way we approach the throne of God's grace. Remember, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. But Jesus changed all of that. As the perfect, obedient son and servant of the covenant, he was born so that as the perfect human being, perfect by the power of his divine life, he could enter. But he entered and was crushed and stricken down for us. 
He died when he did not deserve to die because he died in our place. And then what happened on the Temple Mount? Do you remember? When Jesus died, when he cried out, it is finished, the curtain that hung in the temple was torn in two, rent in half, blown open. Nothing separates us now from approaching God because Jesus went for us. And being the perfect, pure Son of God died in our place. So, here Hebrews 10, 19 and following. Remember Aaron's fearful approach on the Day of Atonement. And let your heart just soar in amazement today at the new way that's open for you. This is why Jesus came. This is why he came. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in this series, uh, the Lamb of God series, there's a lot of gospel. I'm okay with that. I hope you're okay with that. There's a lot of gospel in these stories we're looking at. We could just sit back and relish in all of the gospel that we're learning about the Lamb of God from this biblical theological theme. But what do we do with it? Is God calling us to do anything with it? Is it just good news and then that's it? Or are we called to live in a certain way because of it? Well, here's what Hebrews gives as the application of the Day of Atonement. This is what everything we've looked at this morning should do, according to the writer of Hebrews. He says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So would you pray with me to that end? Would you pray with me that the Lamb of God, pictured in Abraham, given for Isaac, pictured in Passover, given for the people, for every family in Egypt, in Egypt for uh, the Lamb of God who is now put to death on this day of atonement, looking forward to Jesus. Pray that it would fill our hearts with good tidings of great joy, but that it would compel us to love and to good works as well. Let's pray together. Father, as we see the day drawing near, may we always draw near to you through Jesus. Keep our faith from wavering. Give us strong faith. Give us lives that even though we trip and stumble and don't always get it right, give us lives that are committed to stirring one another up to love and good works. Keep us together, unified, growing as a body. And help us to never let our sins set that torn curtain back up again in our consciences, keeping us from you. Help us instead to know and remember that we are covered by the sacrifice of Christ and that our sins are carried far, far away. Make us run right through that torn curtain, straight to our Father's throne of grace. We pray all of this confident that our sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God born in Bethlehem. Amen.